Uh, everyone, welcome to Manufacturing Hub with me, Dave, and this guy up here, Vlad. We are continuing our reshoring theme, we, and we have made it to episode 62 with Sean Murray, I, VP of Customer Success at Bright Machines, but he's going to tell us his crazy path that he's gotten here. But, uh, but first, Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks a lot, Dave. I'm glad, glad to be here. Excited to talk to you guys. Um, by the way, I think Vlad's approach of not asking for subscribers is a good move. It kind of creates that exclusiveness <laughs> kind of thing. Like you have to, you have to be, you want to be a part of it. You're, you're not being asked to join. You, you just want to find a way to sneak in. I get it. It's a smart way to go. I'm not going to deny or confirm that I do have that strategy in place, <laughs> but really appreciate you joining us today, Sean. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Thank you for the kind comments, but uh, could you give us maybe a little bit of a background info before you got to Bright Machines where you are today? How did you get started in manufacturing, automation? What was your journey? How did you, again, like what were maybe some of the key transitions that you can talk to us about and how did you get to where you are today? Sure. Yeah. My, uh, my path to uh, manufacturing and automation was uh, not at all planned out, right? So I had no intention of really ending up in, in manufacturing or automation. Uh, 17 years old, looking for a summer job. And I had a friend that worked at the one and only at the time, M&M Mars Candy Factory in Hackettstown, New Jersey. So I, I got a summer job there. And it was the first time I saw a conveyor belt moving things around. And, and I remember to me, it felt like, um, I mean, it was a candy factory, but it felt like Willy Wonka. Because, you know, it was more than just conveyor belts, of course, even in uh, 1988, which is, you know, shows my age. But um, yeah, they had a fair amount of automation, old mechanical stuff, but it was, it was, it was cool. And I'd find myself on breaks just watching the things move. And, and uh, so that, that was my first introduction to automation. I worked there on and off for two years, um, went to college, got my degree, and then, again, had no intention of really going into manufacturing or automation. And then... Um, I got recruited. So IBM hired me and I just wanted to work for IBM and they sent me to a manufacturing facility as my first job. And uh, that continued. And I ended up going to Philips Electronics where I got into electronics manufacturing, um, where I spent uh, about 15 or 16 years. And then off to Panasonic where I did more, uh, more electronics, but then more into uh, kind of larger scale automation. And then eventually a bright. So, you know, the way life goes, 28 years have gone by and suddenly I've only worked in manufacturing and automation. And, uh, turns out, I guess that's what I love to do. Um, and it is, <laughs> I love to do. but uh, again, it wasn't really a design plan. I, I thought it was cool to watch automation as a kid and then suddenly it's my career. So now I'll call it my calling, I guess. Sean, if I, if I may ask a question, I guess, looking back at how manufacturing was, I would say like in those years, are there any, maybe, and again, I'm leaving this broad intentionally, are there any key differences that you've seen maybe like in the market and the way things were manufactured versus they are today? Was business different? Like what are your kind of like th thoughts in retrospective? Yeah, no, absolutely. There, there are differences. Um, and actually, I'm going to table that by saying there's some common themes, but there's some distinct differences in how they play out. So, you know, manufacturing, certainly back the candy factory was, was very much um, a science project every time. Uh, so anything that was automated, uh, you, you weren't going to one of 10 conveyor companies. It was only a handful of places you could conveyors, but everything you would get, you would then modify. So it was, a, there was this team, was a, remember they had this amazing tooling shop and it was the biggest tooling shop I've probably ever seen, um, which is funny because it's a candy factory. They're not making anything that you then have to work on. They're just working on the factory equipment, um, but it's massive. And, you know, I don't know how many people there were, but it seemed like a hundred engineers that were there just to keep the automation going. It seemed like there was more people working on maintaining the equipment than if you just had the people doing the work at the time. <laughs> it seemed that way. And there was still a lot of people on the floor, but, um, you know, it was, it, it was, it felt very early stage, very, uh, kind of rudimentary, but, but still kind of cool. Um, if, if you fast forward it now, of course, there's, there's so many options out there that there's, there are automation products now that you can buy or, or close to it. Um, and so many, you know, uh, you know, the, the whole data side of it, the whole software side of it didn't exist, of course, back then. Um, so all of those tools now exist and there's certainly established processes and, and standards that, that weren't in place. So it's, it's a little more refined, but I still find that engineering, uh, you know, make it better, do it better, build it here spirit is still there. So that, that's why you still see so many kind of, uh, you know, custom and automation solutions within manufacturing. Um, but it, it's definitely more refined now, st still a bit 
you know, rough compared to other industries, but it's, it's definitely more refined, more, more solutions available for people. And it's better understood too. I think there's a, there's a lot of uh, smart folks walking around who know automation. And it's a very interesting perspective. You know, I've also seen, I would say, a lot of the like machine shops that were, I would say, like native to the company slowly disappear or, you know, manufacturers trying to run a lot leaner. And I, I personally don't know, you know, if that's the right way to go, because obviously there's complexity with, I think, like evolving technology. So relying on may- many moving parts becomes more and more difficult. But at the same time, obviously there's business I would say like implications in doing so. So I, I guess like, I'm just curious, do you see us heading in the right direction? Do you think we should be maybe bringing some of that workforce back to sort of reinforce maybe the fundamentals that we see in facilities? Like what are your general thoughts again on how the the shift has gone from, you know, keeping everything in house to sort of spreading all of the, I would say again, like maybe not necessarily technologies, but people or resources to outside uh, vendors, manufacturers, and then using them to sort of uh, run your operations? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, the, the initial comments about, you know, the tooling shops going away or getting smaller, I think that's a good thing, right? So, I mean, I, 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 you know, I do love the whole engineering and tinkering aspect of it, but the fact that um, many manufacturers don't need those massive dedicated areas and people around, you know, tooling and, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, equipment to maintain their equipment, I, I would hope would mean that the uh, you know the uh, the equipment that they're purchasing is more stable, more standard. That's a good thing, right? So if the if the the automation and manufacturing equipment that people can buy today is are more robust and easier to operate, that's wonderful. So you don't need that whole army of people. Uh, the second part of your question, though, is is really around skill set. I, I do think that it's important that you know manufacturers, especially. Uh, know how to manufacture and, and know the ins and outs of, of the, uh, the complexities of manufacturing. And, and for a while there, you would see um, a lot of manufacturers who were experts at building their widgets, but then they've, they've gradually pushed their expertise out, right? They would they'd bring in people who could help maintain it. Then they'd you know, bring in people that could help design it. And then they'd bring in people that could help build it. And suddenly it's 20 years down the road and no one in, in the factory who puts the label on the box knows how to build their widget anymore. That's really dangerous. And, and that's the position a lot of companies find themselves in. Um, and, and pre-COVID, really a bunch of companies got got bit uh, when supply chains, you know, did what they've done in the last two years. So that that's a dangerous thing to do. So you can't have all of your expertise outside of the, the, the manufacturing facility. It, it's a, I mean, you can, but it's, it's a risky endeavor. And I think uh, most of the world has realized that over the last two years. And you think we'll find, I guess, like a metaphorical balance, or you think it might go sort of in like waves in the sense that, you know, now that we've seen, we don't have enough like skilled labor, I would say like in US and a lot of facilities, we're going to bring it back and try and get more experts in, again, automation, engineering, technicians, and there's going to be this wave of trying to get lean again, you know, and we're going to go through these maybe like different motions uh, or do you think that we'll find some kind of like a happy medium where it makes sense for us to keep some technical expertise like in-house and then outsource some of it outside? Yeah, the sooner we find that medium, the, the better, the stronger we'll be as, as an industry, right? And, and again, I'm, I'm not, not talking about it in a specific geo or anything. I'm talking about manufacturing in general. Um, because I think, uh, and, it, and it speaks to the maturity of, of, uh, of manufacturers and manufacturing uh, you know, the move towards the pendulum uh, kind of strategy change, which is, is sort of what you do in early stage or, or more early stage industries, you know, we should build everything ourselves, go completely vertical. No, we should outsource everything now uh, to this country. No, let's find a cheaper country. Those big pendulum swim, swings are dangerous, but I think that happens as industries become more mature. When you get very mature, I think then you find that balance and that's what creates real stability because it's, there isn't a, there is no one answer. There never is. Um, but being, you know, uh, sort of flexible and skilled enough to manage uh, the bumps that come, the changes that come, the unforeseeable things, that's, that's the balance you need to find. You, you need to have the expertise, you need to have the ability, but you need to have the, you know, intelligence uh, and data really in your industry to find um, the ways you can save money that are, smarts and make you more competitive so it's again it's not outsource everything 
it, it may be outsource some things and it may be, you know, let's, let's find the parts we do really well and outsource the parts we don't do well, but make sure you hold on to the parts you do really well. And it's, is that sort of balance that comes with maturity that, you know, some manufacturers have found, but manufacturing now needs to find. And that's why like, I, I really like that answer because again, it's a very, I would say difficult and challenging, I would say perspective. And there's no one size fits all answer like in reality, because it's different for every facility. It's different for every company. And again, it's different on the industry. There's, there's a lot of different variables in play. And that's why I personally think manufacturing is such a, an interesting field to be in. But uh, Dave, I wanted to give you maybe an opportunity also to give your perspective and um, throw in a few questions. I absolutely. So I actually have a, have a so Sean's kind of candy story reminded me of something. And I can talk about it because I didn't do the job, right? So I'm not under any sort of NDA, which, which is one of those fantastic things that don't happen all, nearly as much as I, I would like. So um, the oldest like continuously running machine I think I have ever seen was in a candy factory. So I got a call to go to a candy factory outside of Chicago, right? So they, they make pressed sugar, right? all sorts of sugar, uh, sugar and citric acid that you walk into the room and it just kind of burns your eyes and your nose. And you're like, I'm not really sure we should be consuming this as human beings. Um, but so the oldest machine was making uh, pressed sugar. So think of like Pez, right? So, um, and, and I walk up and the, the request that came in was like a controls job. It's like, hey, we're to the point of we need to upgrade the controls and networks and everything in the facility for a variety of reasons. Um, and so I, I go walk over and they've got these machines and they say these machines are like vintage early 1940s and they were put together in order to press cartridges for rifle bullets um, in World War II, right? And so th these things were just hammering. They were hammering at what I would generally call fairly high speed. And uh, we just kind of looked at them and we're like, we probably don't want to start tearing things out and putting PLCs in there. Like if they work, we should probably let them work up until the point that they don't work. And we should probably like figure out what a replacement is going to be because they've been, they've been going pretty good for the last, what, 80 years at this point. And, uh, and if they can make it 80 years, then, then we probably need to, uh, to start looking at, uh, at some replacements of, of what that will be. So uh, candy candy places are always some of the most interesting uh, places that you can walk your walk yourself into. And then we want so, Yeah. Some of us immediately walk ourselves out of those and are like, we, we probably don't want to uh, probably don't want to get uh, too involved in, uh, in some of this craziness, but no. So Sean, I, I think you bring up a, a really good point of back when you started, everyone had a hundred engineers, right? Like you could go out and grape the new graduate class and go get yourself five engineers from the local college or 10 engineers from the local college. And they spend five years or 10 years in what amounts to basically an apprenticeship, right? And then at some point they generally understand what's going on and now they can go ahead and add value to the facility. And we are, we're well past the days of that, right? So now you go get an engineer. And I mean, I know even a lot of engineering interns who are almost demanded to bring value like, hey, there's actual engineering work. We need you to do this so that we can make changes and go ahead and run the line. Um, so like, there aren't nearly as many engineers, there aren't nearly as many skilled, we'll just call them maintenance folks that can go or tool and die folks that can go build this. So with the theme of this being reshoring and the conversations that you have with clients, do you think we need to get away from all of this customized automation and go more towards standards of things that work and uh, yeah, and go more towards standards and, and buy kind of standard products and put them in lines uh, to, to make things run in ways that we all know and understand how they run? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, I mean, the, the, the challenge uh, with automation specifically over the last 10 years has not been lack of capability, right? There's, there's lots of capable, you know, uh, automation solutions. It, it exists in lots of places, but usually with small integrators, with, with established things they, they can do. The, the problem is scaling that. So, with, with, you know, the problem still sort of exists from what I was talking about the old days and that you end up with all these separate islands of, uh, of automation that really have no easy way of, of transferring data, of, of having a common way of working so that you don't have to train, you know, retrain everybody else. So what happened is you'd find these sort of, uh, these people that would grow up, you know, be trained on 
a version of automation, then they would go to a new company and, and their skills may or may not transfer. They know a little bit about PLCs. They know a little bit about, you know, uh, something, but it's not nothing to do with the way this automation works. Yep. So it, it, it's like a built-in dampener for growth around automation. And, and that's been a challenge for a long time. Uh, it gets even worse with software and with communication protocols because then that even becomes a, uh, people defend their software, they defend their communication protocol in a way where they say, no, we're going to be the standard. We're going to make ours the, the one that everyone uses, but then there's 20 more others like that. So then you find people that are just dedicated to one way of communicating data or, or connecting systems. And all of that is, again, it, it stops growth, right? It stops growth of, and again, I'm not talking about a company's growth, I'm talking about the industry's growth and really big advancements. So to break through that, there's got to be some sort of standardization or just some sort of commonly accepted I'd even be okay with, you know, instead of a hundred options, five options or something. If you just, if you got it down to more common ways of, of, uh, of building automation and certainly of communicating and connecting uh, the pieces of the automation together, that's huge progress. And, and we are making progress in, in the industry that way, which is good. I mean, it's just, it's just slower than you'd like to see it. And it's going to take almost something, you'd love to see open source, right? Some sort of open source manufacturing platform that, that then people could play on and build, right? That that's the that'd be a huge game changer. That suddenly someone coming out of college could work in any one uh, industry, any one <clears throat> excuse me manufacturer, and know how to build and, and add value from from the get go. And that's uh, again, it's coming, but it's it's not coming fast enough. It's it's an interesting point. If I if I may interject here, Dave, uh, for a moment, there's a there's an interesting documentary on YouTube about the. It's, um, I guess, like the multiple choices that we have in like daily life, right? And I, I want to relate that to the point that you've made that when you have way too many options, you almost, I guess it's like you become paralyzed by what's available and you just get stuck. And again, I see this a lot, I would say like in the current climate, because there's just so many different protocol options and you can certainly spend a lot of time and money just evaluating what's the right choice and they obviously you know some of them have advantages over others and there's going to be key differences in how they're deployed and maybe some are more scalable than others absolutely right like that i think there's no kind of like debate around that but you can spend a lot of time trying to figure out what works for you and trying to figure out almost you know what's the most optimal solution before you actually launch or standardize on one of those protocols just to find out again it's not just the protocol itself it's also who's available to implement this, who's going to be working on these projects. There's so many variables that I think, I think people almost like disregard and just focus on that one. Like it could be protocol. It could be, again, it could be a piece of hardware, a piece of software, but th there's a lot of similar, I would say examples. And the, I guess the idea of that, um, you know, video that I brought up on YouTube is that they demonstrate that if we have less options, then we spend less time trying to figure out what's right and more time actually like doing something and then we can sort of like pivot if, uh, if need be. But uh, I, that's a really good point, Sean. And it, it's complicated. The whole situation is complicated somewhat by the way, uh, the, the fast boom um, uh, of, uh, of the past few years where many companies have sort of entered the foray into sort of software packages. Um, it gets complicated by the sales and marketing approach because um, you know, marketeers and salespeople are very good at making products sound complete and, and functional. And within the, the manufacturing space, especially with, you know, industry 4.0 and IOT, uh, you know, buzzwords over the last 10 years, everything sounds the same. So now if you hear salespeople talk about the next new product, be it hardware or software, they're pretty much all saying the same thing. And, and it's, uh, it's very difficult for a manufacturer to know what's the right way to go. You know, they're looking they're, they're looking at this menu with a thousand choices, all the same you know adjectives to describe the choices and they're just hungry right? they just want to eat something but uh, it's just hard to know what's the right path and then you know like you said, who can support it, who can install it, who can maintain it? how long has it been around? how long is it going to be around? Can I grow with this? All of those questions are really aren't clear and then that, that's again it, it, it dampens growth of this this industry that uh, we, we obviously care so much about. It's a challenge. Dave, what are your thoughts? I, uh, I would agree with Sean. Um, I would say uh, coming from the, the marketing side, right? Like whenever I talk to, to someone, 
I, the phrase that I continue to repeat sometimes to them, sometimes on mute as I'm screaming uh, over a Zoom call is words mean things. And yeah. if you would like to say that you're implementing an industry 4.0 or an IIoT or any one of these initiatives, like that's great, but what does it mean to you? What products are you going to use and actually like, how are we going to use it? And I find that that is a major disconnect between people talking about the product and people trying to use the product and people who have designed the product. Like typically they're in like three different, very, very different areas. And we almost never have a nice Venn diagram where there's a little bit overlapping or we've got like two clients in the middle OEMs who are using it in the way that it was intended to use it. And now we're using everything in completely different ways. So I would agree kind of with both of you. I think to some extent our dearth of options is great because you can in theory do anything. But as I have found, especially in the last five or six years, you know, just because I can do anything with this particular product or piece of software doesn't mean I should do everything with it. In fact, what I've learned is that the places that try to do everything and just greatly explain the, the platform or ecosystem of what they're using are the places that run fairly good in their narrow bubble. But as soon as you try to expand beyond that or, or add something else, it's like the band-aids all fall off and, and nothing runs well. There, there are particular products that we use, you know, for, for very good reasons. And we have industry standards in many cases. It makes sense to pick something uh, to continue to use what is standard and to build processes and procedures that work for your facilities and find tools, be it hardware, software, or otherwise, that work for what you're trying to build. And if you, if you look and you know, we all know manufacturers, many people on the on this you know, listening today it might be manufacturers. Manufacturing doesn't stop, right? So I mean, the, the business of manufacturing is minute by minute, day by day, and it's and it's relentless. And, and it's it's one of those those industries, and it's exciting for this reason, but it's also you know it's challenging to make changes for this reason. You need to always be ready for the next thing that's coming. You, you need to address it. You need to, you need to handle a thousand variables at once. But at the end of the day, you've got to get product out, and, and that's important. So when you look at uh, any kind of innovation or any kind of investment in new technology or platform, you don't have usually don't have a ton of time to to really dig in deep and figure out. I mean, it, sometimes you get a greenfield situation, but it's very rare. But usually, you're trying to do you know, one and a half day jobs while you're figuring out exactly how you're going to innovate and grow and stay competitive. Um, so, so again, you throw in all that marketing, all that buzz and all those choices, it just does become very complicated. Yep. Um, and again, I, I feel for manufacturers. I've been supporting them for 27 years or something like that. And, uh, you know, and, and it's, it's a challenge. Absolutely. And then to, to Sean's point, I would say one of, I, I've seen, especially in the last four or five years, a bunch of folks coming out with especially software solutions. And I think people coming into manufacturing, bringing tools that we didn't have six months or five years ago that are fairly standard in the rest of the world is amazing. I find that one of the biggest misses is the fact that manufacturers don't do something because they didn't have the perfect software tool, right? They aren't doing the thing because they don't have the time or people or capabilities in order to do the thing. So if you can offer a solution and if you can say, hey, for this price, this is what I'm going to give you. It's going to help your throughput or your quality or your on-time delivery or pick any of their actual pain points, then that then you are going to go speak their language. And I yep. wish that maybe on the sales side, maybe on the marketing side, maybe we as an industry demanded more knowledge of how it's actually going to help us uh, on our bottom line and, and what that means. Um, but so go, going kind of down that path a little bit more, Sean, and, and talking about the data. Um, so the, the data side of, of what manufacturers are seeing and needing and using. I don't think we've actually, so we have talked about data for dozens of hours on this show. So it'll sure. surprise none of our listeners, but I don't think we, we are particularly, we have particularly kind of touched on, on the, the data side, like what, what data manufacturers are using or not using in the reshoring theme. So you talk to a lot of manufacturers, you've been supporting them for, for many years. Are you finding that companies that are looking to reshore are seeing the value of the data that they have or the data that they need to collect in order to make decisions? 
Yeah, absolutely. So the, um, you know, the, and again, why would, let's not even talk about, talk about manufacturing solutions for a second. I, I think any business, any manufacturing business right now has to look at all of the data that's available um, and, and really utilize it when they make the decisions, uh, the strategic decisions like reshore. Um, because again, uh, not even talking about they build the product yet. Supply chain is such a challenge right now. And, uh, and, re, and you know, finding good trained people and keeping your people is such a challenge right now. And um, you have to be able to minimize the, you know, the, the impact on your business that supply chain, negative impacts supply chain can have and the negative impacts on your business that um, personnel issues can have um, to the best of your ability. And to do that, you, you need data, right? So you need, to, you need to analyze, you know, who is your market? What is the product you're providing? Very, very basic stuff, but not at the level, uh, but it's not basic at the level of how, how do I ensure that I can have the most robust manufacturing process where I'm getting the parts at the right time, where I have, you know, the, the amount of people I can get, because that's really the issue with personnel these days. How many people can I get to work in my factory? Um, it's not, you know, offering the jobs is easy. Getting the people is hard. Um, if, I, if I'm only going to get a hundred people, how can I build this with a hundred people? So how much automation do I need versus how much, uh, you know, humans do I need? All of that needs to go in the decisions you make for growing and scaling. So, you know, that at the high level is critical. Then once you get into the manufacturing, your manu- your manufacturing processes have to be a reflection of that, that bigger strategy. So if, um, if you decide you need this much automation because you're only going to get this many, this many people, how do you keep that automation, you know, fed, flexible, um, most reshoring efforts or many reshoring efforts are around supporting a local market. Those local markets often require a higher mix uh, than if you were having a super center in China or something that was just going to build this widget, you know, model A, um, you know, a billion of them a year. That's much easier than building, you know, 50 different models for a specific market. So again, how do you, how do you manage something that's, you know, flexible as opposed to custom automation, which used to be very rigid that could only build that model A. So it, it, it all factors in and then take it a step further into the microcosm and then uh, the data on your line, because you're doing potentially higher mix uh, kind of uh, manufacturing, you now need to be productive with that. So um, you might have a fault or an error on every third product of a build you only build occasionally and you may not notice it because you're only building it twice a month. Well, you would, with the right kind of data, you might realize, well, you're having that same fault and error on six other products that use that same part or it's placed by that same operator or placed on the same section of the cell. And you can only see that if you had good data or a team of people crunching the data or software that did that for you. So, so suddenly tracking that, that massive amount of data and much more complexities, but having presented in a way that's usable and actionable in real time, that's what's going to decide whether you're competitive or not. So when, you, when your reshoring effort comes in, it's not as simple as we want to build for the local market. It's so much more, but it's more intelligent than the broad stroke. Let's send it to China or let's bring it back from, you know, Vietnam. It, it's, it's bigger than that. It's far more detailed and data driven. And it's a fairly complex problem. If I may, you know, like maybe add to your response, Sean, it's a, it's a fairly complex problem getting the right data, as you said, getting data that's actionable, making sure that it gets to the right like stakeholders so that they can actually improve the process and make the right decision. It's a very, I would say, difficult problem that a lot of, uh, I would say, companies have been trying to tackle. And hopefully, you know, again, with the, as you mentioned, lack of personnel issues in supply chain, it becomes more and more important to have that key information so that we could make decisions in, again, near real time, or I guess as, as quickly as we can, so that we could resolve these issues and make sure that the throughput is um, accurate. But uh, I wanted to ask maybe like a more fundamental question around reshoring. So we spoke to Adam and I think, you know, you brought up two points already, which are uh, number one. So I guess there have been supply chain issues in the last couple of years that we've seen. So that's one big reason to bring back your facility or go to a co-packer locally. And also the personnel shortages, right? So being able to kind of monitor closely would be another factor that you would want to consider reshoring. Are there any other like key factors that you're seeing with your customers that are heavily impacting their willingness or their, I would say like need to reshore? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, one, one of the biggest reasons of course is sustainability, right? So, and I, and by that, I mean, customers want to be sure that they can, they can meet the demands of their market, that, that 
disruptions won't stop the flow of product out the back door. Um, so, you know, by, by having it closer, by having your manufacturing more in tune with the specific market you're going to serve, um, you, you automatically have baked in a little bit more sustainability because you can be more flexible and responsive when things change, right? Because you, you'll, you'll feel it more, you'll notice it more, you're working on a more granular level. level. So sustainability at a higher level is, is critical. Down below is again that I mentioned before a little bit about flexibility. So with reshoring, with building for a specific market, for instance, um, for, and even better when it's a local market. So you're, you're building for a certain community or a certain you know region, um, you will have better products. You'll have product that's suited for that market in that region. And again, it depends on which products we're talking about. Um, but if you're building products that are somewhat customized, um, but customized for specific markets that you can only do that or only do that uh, at a really responsive level if you're building local for local, if you're, if you're reassured uh, to the market you're going to support. Um, and all that drives, um, again, drives your, your, your customer base to be more loyal. It drives people to um, give better feedback on your product so you can then improve your product. Um, there, there is a, um, a healing and growth aspect of this too, because the, the product feedback and direct line to your customers is one way you get better product feedback so you improve your products um, we also noticed that uh, building locally uh, you, you tend to get more people interested in working at those companies so you know finding talented people is critical when when uh, you're a behemoth building off in the middle of nowhere in a suburb in a country we don't go to you might not want to go work for that company but if it's if you're back to the sort of you know, the, the respectable factory that your dad worked at. I mean, we're not quite there yet, but that's someplace you might want to go work. So it's also around making manufacturing, uh, I don't want to say cool again, but almost making it cool again, where, you know, it's not, um, it's not a dark factory somewhere and it's certainly not often in a foreign country somewhere, but it's a cool robotics company, which has lots of automation and software jobs that uh, I've been buying their products for the last 10 years and I know them and trust them. That's a place I'd want to work if I was coming out of college. So it's, um, it's almost like rebuilding the whole infrastructure of manufacturing by being local. You know, it, it takes it out of the shadows and puts it in the middle of the, you know, the, the mindset of the people in, in the country you live in. So I really like that picture. You know, it's a lot more positive than, again, just saying the, I would say the supply chain shortages and I would say some political movements have been maybe like a little bit questionable. I really like the, the image that you're, painting with, uh, with, I would say, like the future and why companies are coming back. One, uh, one question I wanted to ask you, and we had a slight debate about this with Adam on, uh, on the previous episode, but are you seeing end users bringing back, you know, equipment back to their own facility again to, in my opinion, to reskill their own employees, bring back their own, I would say, engineers, technicians, operators versus do you see them bring back I would say almost the capability, but work with a third party. It could be a co-packer or co-manufacturer and sort of create relationships in which, you know, they would manufacturing something off their site and then perhaps make the final assembly or whatever requires or has some maybe proprietary information at their site. Like, how are you seeing maybe those uh, two different splits uh, play out with uh, with your end user? Yes, I don't know what Adam's answer was, but uh, but we're seeing both, and I think it's smart. Uh, and by that I mean, um, I, I think manufacturers are testing various models, and we're going to find out which are more successful. And that's a, that's a good way, I think, in the real world to evaluate which models work the best. But I think um, it's I mentioned before, like the big pendulum swings of the past with strategy. Well, now we're we're, we're it's much smaller variations, you know, that we're going to. People are bringing business back, but maybe not all of it. Like you said, maybe they're going to bring back design and, and NPI work, but they're still going to manufacture not quite as far away, but somewhere far away. Or they'll bring in a third party that's going to do some of their process, but not all of their process. I think that's smart. I think that builds a more robust kind of infrastructure in your manufacturing and, and provides some ability to adjust when things go wrong. If, if, um, if, if you're using a, a someone uh, that's, building part of your process and they, and they fail, um, your, your whole system hasn't failed. It's just that one piece. And then if you're smart, you've built in an infrastructure where you've got some technology or personnel that can handle it, or you've got a backup that can handle that. Those are the things I think as an industry, we didn't do very well in the past. It was sort of, I'm hundred percent vertical or I'm hundred percent outsourced and that's it. But now it's sort of like, 
I'm, be, I'm more granular in my decision-making. Uh, I'm going to build the parts that I can build well and automate the parts that make sense to automate, but maybe not every, everything. Maybe there's some parts that it's the last 10% and it provides less value and, and let's have people do that part for a while, uh, which again is more data-driven and more, I think, intelligent than the, the broad strokes of the past. But we are seeing customers doing both is, is the bottom answer. Reshoring is, um, you know, there is such a push for reshoring and so many companies are doing it. We are seeing it. Uh, and even pre-COVID, we were. Um, but, but I like that they're not, you know, companies aren't just going by some old playbook. They're, they're thinking and they're analyzing and they're putting together a strategy and then adjusting as you go. And I, I think that's healthy for any industry. Certainly, um, I think it's healthy for manufacturing. And it's interesting that you mentioned, I guess, a little bit of both. I've always seen where it's, again, like either we outsource everything or we build everything in-house. So it's been, I would say, again, like my... My point was that I've seen a lot of problems with uh, outsourcing certain components, at least from the automation, like the technical standpoint, right? And how that like dynamic plays out. Obviously, I was not involved in like the business decisions, but uh, I certainly see the argument for outsourcing certain components. But now that you mentioned, you know, maybe trying like small batches that you could outsource or having maybe part of your machinery at a third party vendor would be, I think that's a very interesting option. Um, any thoughts, Dave, on, on that? Yeah, I mean, I would say lots of people, I, I think it's it's a good idea. I'd say lots of industries have done that for, for many years. So you look at automotive, right? So you've got automotive and you've got tier one, two, three suppliers. And then depending how close to Detroit you are, you've got tiers that live far below tier one, two, and three suppliers, or everyone just calls themselves tier three suppliers. And so I, I think that that's good. And kind of to, to Sean's point, I think it's good to understand what is important to you and your facility and your customers that you make yourself make the things that are important. And if they're, they're unimportant, then don't feel compelled to, uh, to go through the process of making those. Right. So I so yes. So I, I would say that I think that that makes a lot of sense. And I think that that builds a good ecosystem. Right. So um, I, I grew up in an area that did a, a fair amount of automotive. Right. So there were lots of companies, you know, this facility, these guys made alternators, right? And, you know, this facility, these guys made batteries or whatever it is. And, you know, that's just what they did. And they supplied to kind of everyone and, you know, Ford or Dodge or whomever. They're not going to be like, oh, yes, I have to carve out 50,000 square feet and put a line in to make the alternators I need to make for every car I go. I go through the process of assembling. So, and by going down the process of doing that, you created a much better ecosystem in the area of having manufacturing companies. And because you did that, then you, I mean, you get the benefit of having more people who are exposed to and understand manufacturing. And at some point, maybe you get to go steal some of their best workers because you need someone for your facility, right? So in areas that have a lot of manufacturing, you could go steal and, you know, people can move and share ideas. I would say that that's very important. The the, the downside of kind of you build everything in-house is that, hey, we're X company. We do everything this way. If you want to get promoted, you have to have X years of experience at this company. And I have examples. I'm just not going to say the names of the, those companies and the, these examples. Like, oh, you've got 20 years of experience. Well, you've only been at X company for six months. You couldn't possibly be the quality manager, right? Like, this guy has 15 years of experience in this company. Um, so, there, there are positives. Uh, there are certainly positives of doing that. I kind of want to slightly transition the, the conversation to a high mix environment, right? So Sean mentioned it a, a couple of times. Uh, so, so high mix is people like Poland Springs, right? So I, I'm, I was thinking to myself, what's a good example of a company that just runs one thing? I imagine up in Poland, uh, Maine or around that area, right? Like they have an entire facility and the only thing they do is turn on the hose and fill bottles full of water and they screw the caps on and they palletize them and they send them out the door. And if we can get two more PSI of water pressure, we can fill a couple more bottles of water and we make water. We make, we put water in bottles, we put bottles in cases and cases and pallets, and then we ship them out. And that's the thing that, that we do. And they'll ship them, you know, virtually everywhere. But I would say there are, so most of the companies that I have worked with, the end users in the last, you know, decent number of years, they had, they have a fairly high mix as to if they have, you know, 
10 fairly standard products and they have different lines because they can afford to have machines for each of those products. Or if they've got one line and they've got to flip through that line as quickly as possible and that that's their competitive advantage. Um, I've, I've also seen and work with those companies. Uh, I guess kind of my perception as we, we move forward, companies that can change over quickly, companies that can live with a high mix. And in, in my imagination, uh, companies to, to Sean's point that are local are going to have a much higher competitive advantage because they're going to be fast and nimble in shipping into uh, into their local markets. You've mentioned local a couple of times, Sean. You, you've mentioned uh, kind of high mix. Is that what you're seeing as well? You know, we are seeing... Uh, more mixed than in the past. And certainly I've been selling automation equipment in my, in my career. So the, the easier decisions to automate, or easier products to automate are like Poland Springs, right? So if you're going to build one thing, clear, clear case for automation. You're doing volume, multiple shifts, repetitive process makes perfect sense. So those are the early products to automate. Um, now, again, with reshoring and, and even with, um, you know, just changing markets and, and, uh, and, and just companies trying to be competitive uh, you have to automate more, more higher mix environments or, or there's not, you don't have to, there's more reason to automate higher mix environments. So flexibility now at that, at that level suddenly can't just be handled by people anymore. Um, so just out of necessity, it's going that way. Um, but reshoring brings it faster, I think. Um, uh, so we, we're definitely seeing it. The challenge is then again to find, um, you know, we mentioned before all the, all the variables that are complex, right, between salespeople and and choices on the menu and all those other things we mentioned. If you throw in high mix in there, it's, it's even more complicated, right? Because now we have to think I've got 10 products and multiple variations of those products and, and it's just, it's hard. So at that point, you, you know, as a manufacturer, that, that's the point you want to start removing variables, as many as you can, right? So we can't change our mix. That's, that's how it is. We can't change our market. We love our market. So we're going to sell a complex mix of products to a complex market. Um, that's when you want to get rid of some of the variables on the automation side. How, how can I, I, I want to make sure I'm not reinventing the wheel. I want to make sure I'm not building some Frankenstein custom thing. And I, and I don't want to have 20 suppliers putting together one solution for me because that's also more variables and who do I go to when it goes wrong and I'm not getting the data off the line. So at, at the high mix level, that, that's when even more than at the high volume level, um, automation needs to be simplified and more platform-esque or it's, it's just, it's just another barrier you, you face when you try to automate. And, that, and that's the challenge for these higher mix manufacturers, especially people when they're reshoring. Um, so yeah, that's, so we are seeing it. We're just seeing, you know, them pushing, I think the manufacturing or the automation solution providers um, more towards simplicity, uh, you know, function, clear value, like uh, as opposed to buzzwords, you know, you'll, 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 you'll see a, um, uh, a big executive at a large product company will sit through a presentation with buzzwords. The, uh, the smaller shop with an independent owner that's got high mix, there's no time for it. <laughs> I've got too many things to think about. Yep. Uh, so it's, it's a different, different approach. Absolutely. What, what are your thoughts on, uh, on, on high mix before we continue on Vlad? Um, I mean, I think that's where, Ultimately, manufacturing is going and that's what uh, we're going to see more and more of. Again, I, I think we talked about this off stream, Dave, a little bit, but uh, ultimately you need to be able to respond to the demand from the consumers, right? And that's going to change more and more rapidly because, again, we are ourselves maybe introducing many choices, but uh, every single manufacturer is going to have to be able to Again, I think the concept is not necessarily new, but it's just being pushed, I think, to its limit. But uh, just-in-time manufacturing has been growing fairly rapidly in every single end user that I have uh, worked with. And they're trying to make it as quickly as possible, as customizable as possible. And um, there's a lot of moving parts to that. Uh, but again, I, I, I agree with everything that we've like discussed a bit earlier, that there's a lot of challenges with that. Um, but I wanted to maybe... You know, dive in, Sean, with you a little bit more on uh, Bright Machines. So we've talked to Adam about uh, the offerings from Bright Machines. I guess maybe we we will thank them first for sponsoring the show, but I do want to talk a little bit more about the uh, the products that you guys offer. Go ahead, Dave. Fantastic. I was going to say 62 episodes in, and Vlad does not jump the gun. 
on uh, talking about the company before we do the thank you ad read first. So, so Vlad, you play that sound, and then I will go. Uh, I will go with the ad read, and we'll talk about Bright. There we go. Awesome. So, um, if you guys have missed it, we do want to thank Bright Machines uh, for sponsoring the reshoring theme and all of their support of the company. Uh, so, at Bright Machines, we believe there's a smarter way to build things. That's why we're working with manufacturers around the world to rethink manufacturing operations for whatever comes next. We enable manufacturers to reshore more quickly, to future-proof their factories, to keep up with fluctuating demand, and to save money. With a full-stack solution for assembly and inspection that marries deep industry and technology expertise with hardware and software in new ways, for a more intelligent approach, there's more flexible and more, and more scalable for the next normal and beyond. And so Bright gave us a couple of guides. So they've got a reshoring guide for 2022, as well as top five answers for reshoring. If you guys have somehow missed episode 60 with Harry, he talked a lot about total cost of ownership. And there's a link to some quotes with Harry and also some information, read total cost of ownership in there and the total cost of ownership calculator, which I think is really amazing. And it kind of goes back to the point of, we need to think not about, you know, the cost of this single widget, but the, the larger cost in general. Um, and that would drive us into six other hours of conversation. But Sean, tell us a little bit more about what you're doing at Bright and how you guys are, are helping companies reshore and, and expand what they're doing. Yeah, no, great, uh, great lead in and thank you for that. Um, so yeah, Bright Machines exists really to, um, to break through the noise, if you will. So for, you know, there's a, there's a lot of people like myself that are working at Bright that came from really good companies that have been selling automation, good automation for a long time, but we were frustrated with sort of the pace uh, of innovation at those larger companies. Um, it, 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 I know, I know the industry is going to get there. I know we're going to find a, a more kind of standardized approachable platform that provides value so that manufacturers don't have to fight through all those details. It will happen eventually. Bright Machines is going to get there faster. And, and that's, why I'm, that's why I'm here. So the, the whole focus on Bright, you know, we're a new company, been around about four years. Um, so not quite a startup, but we're probably a scale up at this point. Um, has been finding ways to remove variables from manufacturers so they could get this automation that they were, they were confident would deliver value. So, you know, first started with a standardized hardware uh, cell. So instead of, you know, buying a robot, getting a PLC, getting a computer, find a conveyor, figure out end of arm tools, which is what manufacturers have to go to. Bright Machine sells a, uh, you know, a manufacturing cell that's got a, a standard look and feel interface, standard robotics inside of it. You can change the end of arm tool so it screwdrives uh, one day. And, you know, if you need it to be a, a soldering machine the next day, we make it a soldering machine without having to throw the whole thing out, you know, which is another problem with custom automation. So for manufacturers that automatically removes some variables, we don't have to worry about, you know, it's, it's future proof. We don't have to worry about having to train multiple people on multiple um, functions within my manufacturing line. So for training, it's easier. Ease of use is, is there. Uh, maintainability is there. So removing variables. And then of course we started adding, adding software, which is where the real value is. So Bright Machines is a full stack solution. So, you know, we'll help you design your process. We've got some design experts. Adam, by the way, for a lot of years was a design expert. Um, does a lot of things different now, but um, we'll help you design your product for automation. We'll help you build the automation for it. Um, but we provide the hardware, software, services, and solutions to make sure that, that it uh, continues to deliver um, the automation you need. And from that, we, it comes with the connectivity baked in. So half, more than half the problem for manufacturers when they automate, that they then figure out how to make, how to make their automation talk to the other pieces of automation. So ours is already built in. We can interface with MBS systems, factory uh, information systems, so that uh, the data is already flowing when you turn when you plug it in. It's not quite plug and play, but it's it's getting there, right? So it's getting to the point where it's it's standard platform hardware, software, and services. So manufacturers don't have to be afraid when they step into automation. Uh, and then it's getting better from there. So we're evolving into really you know. We want to be a generational company. We want to be a company that changes the way automation and manufacturing is done. So we want to build that platform. Even if it's only a platform, like I said, if there's other folks that build solid platforms, wonderful. But we'd love to get to the point where, um, and we're pretty close now, where other companies will just, you know, use our platform to build their own automation. That's fine with us. Just, you know, establish, you know, a standard way of going and, and go, and then we'll all be able to talk to each other when we have automation. So like factories, when they reshore or duplicate their operations, 
don't have to think about it. They've got new, uh, a new product to build. They just put in a similar platform cell that already speaks to the other ones and speaks to the rest of the factory and it's connected uh, globally the way uh, data is supposed to be. So that's the vision. That's the future. And you know, we, we, uh, we're dedicated to making this happen. We got a bunch of hard charging people that are here to, to, to see it through, right? And uh, just really make as much change to break through. So uh, anyway, that, that's uh, that's Brighton in a nutshell, and it's uh, the most exciting place I've worked, to be honest with you. Sean, I'm curious. High praise. Go ahead, Dave. Did you have a, a follow up? I, I, I was saying high praise. No, I, I appreciate that. And before Vlad takes us off in another direction, I was over here thinking to myself, I like to tinker. Uh, Sean heard how we have gotten to the point of how we how we produce this show and how we just kind of add layers to add layers. And it looks maybe 5% better than it would have if we have just gone the route everyone else does. But uh, but but at this point in my life, if I'm going to go build a facility, right, if I'm going to go put something new in, I want to buy a line, right? I want to buy a line that someone else says is going to work that has known everything in it. And I want to be able to say, yes, this is what it is and drop it in place. And it, it works from day one. The, uh, the last thing I want to do is to go source every PLC and cable and sensor and done go temp- tinker to try to build it because I don't have an extra five years in my life uh, to, uh, to go ahead and do that. So I, I appreciate that. And I hope more people move towards the purchase it as a solution. Vlad, what are your thoughts? Well, I was going to ask about that exact same, I guess, like train of thought, you know, like Sean, my, my thinking is, and me and Dave have spoken to a few companies who are taking, I would say like maybe a software first approach. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on how that's going to shift maybe the landscape of jobs in manufacturing, right? And what I'm, I would say like referring to like in automation, you had a lot of, I would say traditional like PLC and HMI developers, people who are a lot more like hardware oriented. And now we're starting to see this bridge between as commonly referred to IT and OT. But I would say maybe to phrase my question a little bit better, are you seeing at Bright and probably the end users who are using your solutions, do you see more software backgrounds? Do you see engineers that aren't coming in necessarily with like a chemical engineering or electrical engineering background, but people who are coming in maybe through computer science, people who are a lot more software oriented and do you think like that shift will continue where i would say almost like plc and hmi developers will still be there but they might be you know working for bright to develop the solutions but ultimately the customers or then users it will be a lot more simple for them to let's say maybe modify the cells or change a few things to do what the what they wanted to do like what are your thoughts on i would say like the change in the workforce between what's currently out there and like the software introduction into manufacturing. So, yeah, you, uh, you hit upon, you know, a, a secret, but powerful change in, in what's going on. So yes, uh, fairly recently, I'm, I'd say the last two, three years, we're seeing a lot more software people coming into the manufacturing space in a leadership capacity and a strategic leadership capacity. Um, and the places that's happening is making a real, they're, they're making real breakthroughs. And, and the, the challenge there is that, um, and again, I, I have to be careful with my words because I'm a hardware guy at heart. And, and, and you know, I've worked with a lot of engineers and I respect engineers the most, but um, there's, there's been sort of a, uh, a bit of a trap, I think was really brilliant hardware engineers in the past. And that, uh, that, that love of tinkering can slow you down. And, and that, that's a problem. Um, the software folks come in with uh, no loyalty to their favorite, uh, you know, controller or, or whatever they've been, they've become experts at in their life. They look at sort of the process and the data again to design the manufacturing. So we, you know, at Bright, we often say with software defined manufacturing, that's one of our kind of cornerstones for how we design our processes. We have lots of good hardware people, but we try um, we try to focus them on specific things and leave the strategy up to the kind of people with software backgrounds because they tend to be much faster at implementing breakthroughs, you know, into, you know changes. You know, they're, they're not going to design hardware for the sake of designing hardware, which is, is a, again, a trap that many brilliant engineers fall into. There's lots of cool things you can do with hardware. There's lots of cool approaches you can take to certain things, but it may not be the fastest or best way to get real value or real changes. You, you might get 2% better and work 100% harder to get there. And that's software people won't do that. They're, they're too 
driven on the sort of the process that coding takes even, you know, the, um, we, we tell the story a lot of, you look at massive server farms, um, the way they're structured, um, you know, built software people in mind. If, uh, if 10 out of your 1,000 server farms go down, the end customer doesn't know it. Nothing happens, right? The servers can stop working, but the, the, the information just flows differently and it's a millisecond slower, but no one notices. That's how software people look at manufacturing. If, if, you're, if a feeder fails or, or suddenly a blue screen of death happens, well, the manufacturing shouldn't stop. You just find a way to go around that. And that's, it's kind of, it's a different approach. Whereas a hardware guy goes, well, now I have to look at a way to fix that feeder or something. Yes, you do, but let's not stop production. It's, it's just a, it's a revolutionary way to look at manufacturing. We're seeing a lot of sort of, again, software background people making real changes in, in manufacturing. And I'm seeing that bright. I mean, that's many of our founders were software people that, uh, that, that went from software into manufacturing as opposed to hardware people in manufacturing that decided to learn software, which is kind of the, the traditional path in the past. And it's a, it's a very interesting perspective. It, it, again, uh, it, it's... It's always interesting to hear what uh, people in the, in the industry are seeing. I think we're going to see that in the end users also, but I think they haven't all necessarily realized the benefits of, I would say, like software developers coming into manufacturing. But I think we'll see that more and more provided, again, that they can, I would say, like put a very positive shine on what manufacturing is, what it can offer. And I think with new technologies, you know, such as the ones that you're providing, it's going to bring more and more people who are uh, seeing a very positive future again in what's going on and are looking to work on robotics and these new cells. Like it's, I think it's going to become a lot cooler than what it used to be uh, in many, many aspects. Dave, what are your, your thoughts on that? I, I will agree. Um, I have been hiring, excuse me, software engineers and folks that can code for the last five or six years uh, because it is easy to teach manufacturing manufacturing and what a proper manufacturing flow is supposed to look like to someone that understands software than it is to try to teach a mechanical engineer or a manufacturing engineer who's got 20 years in the business understands that facility or a series of them very well how to code and how to look at things in a different way and uh, be it bright or, or anything else manufacturing needs breakthrough improvement um, however we get there i think is less important as a whole than the fact that we get there. But in order to get there, you have to get rid of all of the previous conceived notions of, hey, if the filler goes down or if we blue screen out the HMI, we have to stop everything. Like the, we should never take the line down. I, I, will, I will finish with, we should never take the line down. The line should never stop. Only bad things happen when life stops or when the line stops and, and kind of go from there. Uh, but that, no, it on my chest, by the way, Dave. It says you yeah. should never take the line down. I got that years ago. So, uh, so as a slight aside, Sean, before I ask you to, to tell us the future. So um, I, I have my wife, Beth, uh, hears me say lots of things, right? And so I, I talk a lot about flow. I talk about how 80% of many folk, many factories problems occur because we stop the line. Um, so Beth's mom uh, spent 30 years or so working at Fisher-Price putting together toys. And, uh, and apparently she had a supervisor who every time the line stopped would just screech at the top of her lungs. Why is the line stopped? Why is the line stopped? In my mind, she's like running up and down the line, just, just yelling this up in the air. I'm not sure she's looking, but, uh, but, but I, I told, I've told Beth the story and, and Beth apparently told her mom the story one Sunday night. And, and, and that was Debbie's response. She, she got a, she got a cackling laugh out of it, uh, reminding how it was, but no, only bad things happen when the line stops. If the line never stops, we have almost none of the problems uh, that, that we see in manufacturing. But I, I think that that is kind of one of those nuggets of wisdom, if you will, that we lost 20 or 30 years ago when we offshored a bunch of things. And now we don't necessarily understand that most things that happen negatively are because we, we did one thing and we stopped the line and lines are not designed to stop, right? They're called the line. We have conveyors in them because they're supposed to run. Again, bad things happen when the line stops. Maybe that'll be our pin, Vlad, or our hat. No, that's too many words to put on that. We've been saying we're going to do hats at some point, maybe by episode 100 at this point. Um, but no, Sean, I do want to ask you to predict the future. So uh, based upon you know the great conversation we're having, I think we all kind of know what you're thinking. 
Um, but where do you think that the future of, uh, of reshoring of North American manufacturing, what do you, what do you see the future of that looking like? Yeah, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm pretty rosy actually about the future when it comes to specifically North American manufacturing, but it's not just North America. I, I think the, the parts of the world that sort of turned their back on, on manufacturing over the last 20 years uh, are embracing it again in a positive way. So I, I, I truly believe that there will be some breakthroughs um, in, on the automation side that will make uh, a lot of the variables go away for a lot of companies and, and they'll be easier to adopt. And I think that's going to drive more young, talented people into okay. manufacturing, which is the lifeblood of the business. And it's going to drive strategies we haven't even thought of yet, technologies we haven't thought of yet. So it, it does feel to me that the, uh, the, the breakthrough that, that uh, was originally forecasted with, you know, industry 4.0, uh, you know, years ago is, is, going to, is going to happen, but not driven by technology and not driven by, uh, you know, some breakthrough in data. It's been driven by people who embrace manufacturing, embrace the technology of it, and take us to a level we haven't even considered yet. And I think that's going to happen over the next few years. I think the, the standardization and platformization will finally happen at some level. And then uh, brilliant young people are going to get into this business more. And then we're seeing that all over the place, by the way, which is wonderful. And then um, it's going to take off. You know, I, I, I believe that's going to happen. I'm excited for that. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful for that. I think that uh, that we will have to uh, we will have to get uh, to that point. Uh, probably is a really good follow up to that. So so we we always ask for career advice, right? So maybe we're talking to a college graduate, or maybe we're talking to someone looking to do something different. Uh, what is your suggestion of, hey, you know, is manufacturing potentially a good career opportunity for them? What would your career advice to, uh, to that group be? Yeah, so, you know, we talked about this before we were on, uh, on, on the podcast, but, you know, I, I truly believe that manufacturing is one of the most exciting places to work. And, and prior to just recently, people would look at me like I was, you're obviously kidding. There's no reason that's possible. They, they picture you in the dark factory where you're doing repetitive motions and in a terrible place for terrible pay. That's not manufacturing. It hasn't been for a long time. Manufacturing is a, on one hand, incredibly challenging. There's variables that change day to day. You can't plan for them. And the other hand, incredibly rewarding because you drive multi-billion dollar businesses sometimes where the heartbeat of it is manufacturing. And, um, and, and, and entire industries turn based on how they're manufacturing those. They do well or do poorly. And it's, and it's driven by people, you know, no matter whether it's automation or actually building the product, there's some group of people that made that work, that stayed the extra hour, that rolled up their sleeves, they figured out a way. And to me, that's incredibly exciting. It always has been just to be a part of that whole environment. It's, it's business to business uh, kind of operations. So it's not big corporation and big corporation. It's, it's Dave and Vlad and Sean, and we're going to figure this thing out, find a solution. And I love that. And so it's, it's far more exciting than people think. Now that we've got software and robotics, that's, that's part and parcel to manufacturing. Uh, it's even better because now it's got cool stuff as opposed to conveyors and boxes, right? It's, it's, yep. it's more interesting. So career advice. Yeah. I would, and I would, I would, I would try to find a way. And I have been for most of my career to, to convince young people that manufacturing is sexy, that engineering is sexy, that, that there's wonderful things you can do with it. And, and, and it's, it's even more so now. We didn't talk about this before, but another thing we're seeing in, in really successful manufacturing businesses is that even the companies that ha are just beginning to automate or have been automating for a long time or outsource automation, they have these automation champions. They've got one or two smart, smart ladies or smart people that are really responsible for driving the automation. And these are always just a really good engineer with a good head on their shoulder that figured stuff out. Sometimes they're not even engineers, by the way. Sometimes these are people that just figured out automation because they've been in engineering and manufacturing for 10 years, they've been in manufacturing environments for 10 years, and they figured it out. Those, those people are superstars. And, uh, and it's just a, it's an interesting way to become a superstar in a business. They make huge money, they drive huge decisions, and they wear jeans every day. And it's just one of those things that kids may not realize is an option, right? It's, it's uh, Anyway, so I have a son who just graduated from UGA. He's, he's a mechanical engineer, not not you know, not entirely on his own doing. By the way, no, I'm sure it was. He loves mechanical engineering, but I, I pushed him towards engineering for that reason. That there's there's so many cool things you can do with that kind of background, and there's so many interesting ways you can drive business or even just build your own thing in your backyard when you want to. I mean, either way, you've got those skill sets. So anyway, that's what I would. That's my career advice for people 
coming out of college. No, I, I think that that, uh, that that's amazing, and, and I would uh, I would absolutely agree with uh, with everything Sean is is saying uh, with that. Um, the, the next segment is what I, for most of the time, joke is our is our not sponsored audible segment, where I ask you for a book recommendation or two, and Vlad goes and downloads it while we're finishing the show. So, do you have a, a book recommendation or two that, uh, that you'd like to share, Sean? So here's the thing. So, you know, you gave me this warning yesterday. You told me you were going to offer me this. And I, I spent last night trying to find a really smart book that I could recommend. So I look brilliant. But I realize I'm, I'm a complete poser. The truth is I'm a fantasy nerd. So I, I read fantasy more than anything. But okay. so the, last, actually, the last book I just read was the Game of Thrones book. That, so the first, okay. the first book in the George R. R. Martin series, I saw the whole series and was so heartbroken when it ended the way it did. I figured I should might as well give the books a chance. So that's actually the last book I read, which I um, just finished about a week ago. It, are, are the books good? So I, I, I was binge watching the series and I got to like halfway through the, the second to last season. And I just kind of, I kind of gave up on it. So, uh, but, but are, are, are the books good? Uh, well, the books are really good because they're, they're, they're long, uh, oh. but because you've seen the series, you feel like a speed reader because the, at least the first oh. book follows the show so closely that uh I read it in like a week and it's like 700 pages, nice. but uh, which is faster than I normally read, but it was, it was because it was, the story was already there mostly. And you're just picking up the Delta uh, parts of yep. the story, but, uh, but it was very good. I enjoyed it quite a bit. But, That's uh, good. So Vlad, you will have some, a lot of listening to do and, or uh, a show to, uh, to go on HBO max and, uh, and watch uh, Allegedly they're coming out with more in the uh, more, more in the game of Thrones ecosystem. Yeah. But, uh, but I'm confident there are entire game of Thrones podcasts uh, and, and we, we don't need to delve much deeper um, into that. Uh, but no, Sean, we, we do want to thank you. We've got one last question for you is, is who should reach out to, you know, who are you looking to talk to? Are you guys bright looking to hire? Uh, what does that look like for you? Sure. Yeah. We're absolutely looking for manufacturers that are looking to automate, um, we can, we can automate a lot of things, but our sweet spot is really at the moment we're focusing is sort of electronics in a box. So, you know, anything where you're putting a circuit board into something and then finishing the product, yep. servers, uh, tools, those kind of things. Um, but come to us. If you, have a t- if you have a topic you want to talk about, we'll be glad to uh, put you in touch with experts and, and talk you through it. If we can't automate your, your process or product, we'll tell you right away and hook you up with some people who, who can. So we have lots of, uh, again, we're here to democratize automation. So we've got lots of network of, of integrators. People would think would be our competitors that we've reached out to and we're trying to, you know, be a part of a, a system there. Um, and we're hiring, we're hiring quite a few people. So service engineers, application engineers, technical people, quite a bit. I think we have a couple of sales positions to open, but who needs those guys? Um, but, uh, yeah, look us up, brightmachines.com. You'll see our, our jobs board and you'll see a little bit about what we're doing and some of our other products we've automated. Um, Give us a call. No, that, that is amazing. Thank you so much, Sean. Uh, we are going to finish just our normal amount over time uh, th- than we normally do, which which is a win for us. But no, thank you, Sean. Uh, this, I feel, has been some really good color on, on a lot of the other conversations that we've been having. And I think it's been great to get, you know, hearing your experiences and what you're talking to manufacturers. And uh, I mean, honestly, it, it's, it's always good at least once a week to hear someone rosy and excited about reshoring and the hope that we're going to continue to, to have more. Um, but because, well, I think everyone knows that that's where Vlad and I are because we're fairly committed to the careers um, at, at this point. We, we've got a ways to go uh, but before we are done. But no, uh, thank you, Sean. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I will remember... Uh, for the second time this show to say, if you listen this far, uh, if you're watching us live, please give us a thumbs up and hit subscribe on whatever you're listening to. If you're listening to us in podcast form, please rate us five stars and subscribe and do all of those other fun things. Uh, if you want to catch all of the videos and audio and everything like that, you can check us out at manufacturinghub.live. It, we've got a pop-up if you guys would like the information to know when we're going live uh, with the links uh, once a week. About an hour before we go live, we, that's the only email we send out every week. And uh, I think we've actually been really good at remembering to, uh, to send that one out. But no, uh, thank you, everyone. Until next week, we'll see you all soon. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Sean. Yeah, thank really you. Really appreciate thank it. You. Bye-bye.